are listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jeffrey, New Hampshire. Our mission is to bring the hope of Jesus to Jeffrey and beyond. We are here to know Christ, grow in Christ, and serve others. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejeffrey.org. I was reading this week in a book, and it was uh, talking about, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, I, I wasn't as familiar with it, but it, there's a demonstration in 1988, March 25th, 1988, called the Candlelight Demonstration. It was a protest against the communist regime in Czechoslovakia. And a group of several thousand uh, Christians and Catholics and a variety of other people in Czechoslovakia all lit candles and went out in public together to protest the, uh, the suppression on religion, the lack of freedom of religion to express their faith, the persecution that was going on under communism in that time. And there was just a simple display of a peaceful protest of going out in public and lighting a candle and letting others know that I believe in Jesus Christ, that I am a follower of Jesus. And to light that candle in public and to in some ways have that light shine out as a representation of the light that shines in our hearts. And so there is some of a solidarity in a candle that harkens back to thousands of years of church history that has been lighting candles in such ways, but also a reminder that in today's world, it is not the most popular thing to come to church and light a candle or on Christmas Eve come and hold a candle that is, uh, that is taken from here and lit as it spreads the light around the church. And we hold and we sing Silent Night and O Holy Night, and these might just be cultural things, but For me, it had an impact to remind myself that throughout history, that has not always been a free thing to do. And we here in America get the opportunity to come out on during Christmas season, on a Christmas Eve, and to light a candle and remind ourselves that the light of the world has shone into the darkness. And the light of that can dispel the darkness. And the darkness will not overcome it. And so I hope this Christmas there is a a sense of that, a reminder that there is this aspect of a candle that that expresses a small, faint light. But that small, faint light can make such a difference in the world wherever you find yourself because you carry the light of the world that we just sang about earlier. That light of the world has stepped into the darkness and has come to those of us who sit in darkness. And the people who sit in darkness, as Isaiah says, have seen a great light And that is the light that we step into today, reminding ourselves that Jesus has come and he is coming again. And we, as Christians, we push back against the materialism of the world and we push back against the busyness of the culture. We push back against all the hubbub and the busyness and we come together and we light a candle. and We say, I believe in Jesus Christ. We repeat the creed, and I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth, right? I believe in the virgin birth and his death on a cross and his burial in a grave and his resurrection. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, and I believe in the resurrection of the body, and I believe he's coming again. This is what we say as Christians when we light a candle, when we come together and we express that light to the world. So those are some of the thoughts that I had around the simplicity of a candle and the simplicity of potentially, you know, coming together on a, on a time and, and lighting a candle together. These, these things remind us of, of things that are, are much deeper than just one little candle can express. And hopefully that's one way that we can ingrain in our minds uh, the importance of this season beyond just it being a holiday, but that it's Christmas and we celebrate the birth of Christ, our Savior, for that. So... So that was a free message. There you go, okay? (laughs) Let's look at Luke chapter one. Not that you're paying for this one either, but let's just say Luke one, verse uh, 57. Verse 57, we'll begin reading. This is Zechariah's song last week. We looked at Mary's song. We're looking at rejoice this this, uh, Advent season, looking at the different songs of Christmas. And this song or really prophecy that is preached and sung in some ways we'll see in verse 67. Let's read up here the birth of John the Baptist. Verse 57, now uh, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. 
And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and uh, they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by that name. You know, first of all, just let her name the baby what she wants, right? I mean, that's what we would say. No. Uh, verse 62. And, and they made signs to his father inquiring that he wanted him to be called. What he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing, uh, blessing God. And fear came upon all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? It's almost like that song, what child is this, right? For, for the hand of the Lord was with him. Verse 67 says, and his, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, and here's the, the song if you would, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited the redeemed, uh, visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then he gives a, a prophecy of the statement about John the Baptist. And he says, and you, child, John, he's speaking of, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to the people in the forgiveness of their sins. And then he speaks about Jesus, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light, as we just were talking about, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of all peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Speaking of John, let us pray. Father, we come before you. We're grateful for your word. We lift it before ourselves today. We present ourselves to this word. We humble ourselves underneath it, knowing that this is your word. This is your truth that is being delivered to us. We ask, God, that you would speak to us, every single person here, God, that your word would impact our lives. This would not just be a study, an intellectual examination, but also a spiritual experience whereby your spirit within us transforms us, makes us new, and reminds us of our identity that is found in you and gives us a boldness to share this light that is within us. Do not put our light under a bushel, as your word reminds us, but to shine your light so that all the world may see. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this Christmas season, this rejoice theme is wonderful as we are focusing on joy today. For Christmas ultimately rejoices in the miraculous. It pushes you this Christmas every year to, to wonder at the wondrous events, these wondrous events recorded for us in the scripture, miraculous as they are, as we look at today with the birth of, of John and of Jesus in next week, but as we both look at these miraculous births, today I want us to really look at leading up to the birth of Jesus, of the birth of John the Baptist, and in particular the words his father Zechariah sings out in prophecy and proclamation. Both Jesus and John, they carry so many similarities. Fascinating. Obviously, Jesus, and rightfully so, gets more attention during this season. But both births were announced by the angels. Gabriel announced the coming of them, both of their lives. If you think about it, John and Jesus, both of their lives are foretold in the Old Testament. They're... Um, 
their really job, you could say, of what they had come to this earth to do had been foretold for centuries and centuries before. The very names of John and Jesus were given by God to specifically impact uh, this situation and, and the people around them and to tell us something about who they were. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they say his name is John. This child sent by God to Elizabeth, his mother who was too old to have children, a miraculous birth here, an angel Gabriel announcing his coming, his naming of him, Zechariah, his father, singing this incredible prophecy after he has been silent for probably around nine months, unable to speak, now speaks boldly. And then it is said by Gabriel that he will be a great child, he will have a great impact People will rejoice at his birth. He will be great before the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn the children of Israel to their Lord, speaking of John the Baptist. I mean, there's a lot of pressure on this young kid, right? (laughs) It's a lot going for him. I don't think angels were rejoicing at my birth. (laughs) I don't think angels were rejoicing in this way. And so to think about the particular miraculous nature of both John and Jesus is an incredible thing here during this Christmas time. And John's entire purpose for coming, why, why is it that God spends so much time, and really in particular the book of Luke, spends so much time on Zachariah and Elizabeth and this person of John right here at the beginning of his gospel of Luke and the others, right? Why is it that John gets so much attention? Well, John's entire purpose for coming is this sense of what he says later on. John says in his own words, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Familiar with that verse, John 3.30? He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist says that, speaking of Jesus. My entire life is to point to the one who is to come right after me, the Messiah. I am here to increase Jesus and find myself decreasing. John's life and purpose for his birth was to prepare the way. Prepare the way for the coming Savior of the world. John was born to prepare a people for the coming King. John chapter 1 verse 4 actually says that John was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the light of the world. John was a special child. In fact, John's uniqueness is found when Elizabeth visits Mary. They are relatives, as the word would say, perhaps cousins. And they visit and his entire body jumps within the womb at the mere presence of the Messiah. What an incredible an incredible thing. The, the, the entire body of John the Baptist literally jumping for joy because the Messiah is near. John was to be that literal embodiment of the jumping of joy, to be that one who goes before and expresses the excitement of the one who has come to save the world, is right behind me, he is coming, he is close, he is near. John was to be that final prophet He was the one who would foretell the coming of the Messiah. He was the the final prophet of all the prophets that had gone before. John was to be the one who culminated all of that message from the Old Testament of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and all of them that lead us and point us in Malachi as it is carrying on this message to be that final one who gets to usher in and roll out the red carpet for the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world special purpose, to get people ready, to get people excited for that coming. Not very different, maybe, perhaps, than what we've been doing in Advent and what we do in every Christmas season. As I was sitting in the front row and we said Christmas Eve or whatever is coming so soon, and uh, my daughter and her friend here were saying, it's in eight days, eight days till Christmas, it's only eight days away, right? Like, they're all excited, they know it's coming, perhaps there's Christmas presents under the tree already, And you've already, kids, gone over to them and you've weighed the size, you've picked them up, you've perhaps peeled back the corner to see underneath, you know, that's a trick you can do and put the tape back, you know. (laughs) Just sharing some good insights, you know. They'll never know. And all of those little things that you do to prepare about the coming of Christmas Day and the excitement it brings and the lighting of candles and the decoration of Christmas lights and the singing of Christmas music 
since Halloween, right? <laughs> and we've been doing that, and there's this preparation of our hearts and Advent as it reminds us. Perhaps you've been reading along with that Advent devotional we've been doing for the past couple of weeks, preparing our very own hearts for the coming of Christmas Day, that reminder of a people who sat in darkness have now seen a great light. I wonder if that message perhaps can miss us this season if we ourselves are truly ready. I'm not necessarily saying for you moms and dads, are you ready for Christmas Day and have your Christmas list picked off? No, no, this is church. I'm not thinking through that perfectly, but in that sense, yes, we can be ready for those things, but are we ready in our heart in some ways to make room, to make room in our heart for Jesus, to make space in our lives to contemplate the beauty of what this season represents, the spiritual nature of these things. Just like we're getting ready for Christmas, we're decorating, we're doing all of these things, yes, Jesus is coming. And we are reminded that Jesus has already come. And he has come to save you and to live and to change within your heart, but he's also coming again. There's that reminder for us today. And so John is that voice in the wilderness as he's crying out. It is as if he is on a megaphone speaking out for you to not miss it. Don't, don't let it go by. Yes, go, go get your tree. Go get your presents. Hang up your stockings with care. Christmas is coming. This is the message of Jesus. This is the message of John. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. He is almost here. And John is telling a world to repent and turn and to prepare their hearts to receive the Savior. Not very different than a message that we still need to hear today. So before we look into that message, a little bit of what he says, I want us to look a little bit about who John, Zechariah, and Elizabeth are. Perhaps, again, you've come to church your whole life. You've grown up in Sunday school. You know these stories but if you haven't and you're joining us today, you might be a little bit less familiar with people like Zachariah and Elizabeth because obviously, rightfully so, the angels and Jesus and the shepherds and the wise men get a lot of attention. But we forget that a good portion of the gospel of uh, Luke in Luke chapter 1 and 2 really begin to focus our attention on these prophecies and these people of Zachariah and Elizabeth. In fact, the very gospel of Luke opens up with the person of Zachariah. Verses 5 through 25 of Luke say, essentially, there was a priest in Zechariah, uh, named Zechariah who was working in the temple, and he was visited by an angel, and he was told that he would have a child named John, and yet he, he is um, surprised, no doubt, by this. For Zechariah and Elizabeth, it says that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all their commandments and the statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. And so the giving and the gift of John is both this miraculous nature, very akin to the story we read in the Old Testament of Abraham and Sarah and Hannah that we read about and talked about last week in relation to Mary. And so there is a lot of overlap here. Zechariah is a priest in the tribe of Levi. He's serving in the temple, going about his job and doing his duty. He is just serving. He's not expecting to hear anything in particular because why? Well, there has been almost 400 years of silence up until this point. It's called the intertestamental period. The intertestamental period is just that. The Old Testament ends with Malachi, the last prophet there after Nehemiah and some of those situations that's going on. And Malachi preaches out this word in the end of Malachi, the very end of the Old Testament. And then we turn the page and it's Matthew chapter one. <laughs> and you're like, well, what happened in between Malachi and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Well, there's about 400 years where there is no written prophet or written record recorded for us. And so the Jewish people and the Israelites have been uh, uh, taken over by Rome at that time, and they are sitting, you could say, in darkness, waiting and waiting and waiting. 400 years of not having heard a direct revelation from God. Not that nothing didn't happen during that period, but in particular, God's almost silence is deafening for them. And so, 
it is striking that off the page of Luke chapter 1, you could say it is just out of almost nowhere. Where it says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife, the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And now while they were serving as a priest, uh, before God in his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside in the hour of incense. And then appeared to him an angel a messenger of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. And the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. You shall call his name John and you will rejoice and have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. He'll be filled with the Spirit. And he, he will go before him in the Spirit, this is verse 17, and the power of Elijah, it says. There's an extraordinary connection here that it, it makes. Uh, the scripture and uh, the angel visits and, and shares this, this idea that he will go forward in the power of the Spirit and the power of Elijah. It's a direct connection to the very last chapter of the Old Testament. The very last chapter of the Old Testament is Malachi chapter 4. And if you were to flip over. If you have a Bible, you could flip over to chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Malachi, and you would get a little bit of a sense. It's a short one of a a book, a minor prophet. In fact, I'll read in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. This messenger, this word, in fact, in Malachi 3, 1 is, in Hebrew, you could say, I will send my malachi, my malach my messenger. The word Malachi literally could be translated angel. So an angel is a messenger of God. So Malachi, the minor prophet in this Old Testament, is this kind of sense of this messenger on behalf of God sending word to God's people. And chapter 3 says, behold, I send my messenger, my Malachi, and he will prepare the word the way before me. John becomes that messenger sent uh, this word as to who John will be by a messenger, an angel in the New Testament. That's why Luke 1 begins with an angel's visitation. And then in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, verse 2 of chapter 4 says, and but for you who fear my name, this is a key verse we'll look here at the end of the sermon, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out like calves from the stall. And then look at verse 5 of Malachi 4. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah. You see that? The prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And what will he do? He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then in Luke chapter 1, these are some of the same words he says in verse 17. This John will go before him in the spirit of the power of Elijah, Luke 1 verse 17. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to the children. This is what the angel says. He is almost directly quoting from Malachi chapter 4. So in that intertestamental period of silence, the end of Malachi is now connected to the beginning of Luke. The end of this Old Testament period, the word of God speaks through that period into the person of Zechariah through John the Baptist who will prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. Do you see how amazing that is? One writer says this, his disciples asked him, speaking of Jesus, of why Jesus was even thought of as the Elijah. Many people were saying in the New Testament, are you the Elijah? Are you the Elijah? Are you the Elijah that is to come? And his disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes say Elijah must come first? This is in Matthew 17. Jesus answered him, said, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. And I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not know him, but they did to him whatever they wished. And the disciples understood this, that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. The point I'm making here is just that Jesus himself says that John the Baptist is the Elijah from the Old Testament that is to come, that will come and prepare the hearts of the people, as Luke 1.17 just said. And so John is the fulfillment of years and years of prophecy. He becomes the baptizer, John the baptizer, and he is the one who prepare people's hearts and, and lead them to repentance to receive their king, 
John preached a message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Repent from your old way and turn to the new, for he is coming. The sun is rising. A new day is dawning. Are you ready for the day to come? We sit in darkness now, but the light is coming. This is John's message. So behold, as Jesus steps onto the scene in his public ministry, John is fitting that he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John's message, prepare to receive your king. And I think it's fitting as we said already, but this is a fitting message for you and me today. To ready our own hearts for Christmas Day, for Christmas Eve, for this season of Advent, to ready our own hearts to say, are we receiving our king? Are we humbling under his mighty rule? Are we able to sing, he shall reign forevermore? To turn from our sin and our wicked ways and to seek his light to guide our feet in the path of peace. To allow his light to shine into the darkness to direct our paths. To recognize that we are not kings of our own little kingdoms, but that we serve the king of kings who shall reign forevermore over all things and my heart and life as well. And it is fitting for us to put ourselves in those shoes and to say, do I believe this? Have I seen this in my own life? Am I ready to receive this? Perhaps there's someone here today that senses the nostalgia of the Christmas story and knows that there is a wonderful message there, but has never truly received Jesus as their own king of their own life before. Yes, you know the stories, you've been to the nativity, you might have even practiced the Sunday school, you may have lit the candle, but have you personally received Jesus as your king? Have you readied yourself, as John would say, repent and turn from your sin and turn to Jesus as your savior? And for those of us who have, we must remind ourselves of the importance of preaching that message to ourselves each and every day, of not losing sight of the important message of salvation that we find in this Christmas story. And so we see in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth this incredible faith, this incredible message. Zechariah is visited by Gabriel, and yet Zechariah's response is somewhat of a response of hesitation. He, he isn't exactly sure as to how this is all going to work. And he seems to doubt in some way. For in verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, and, and essentially said, do, do you not know who I am? <laughs> he says, I am Gabriel. I stand, this is verse uh, 19 of Luke chapter one, uh, and he says, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and bring this good news to you. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And so, the angel strikes Zechariah with a sense of un being unable to hear and unable to speak. We know he can see because he used a tablet to write with, and it says in other places that they made signs to him to try to communicate. But for almost nine months, he is unable to hear and unable to speak. Why, why would they do this? I think there's, a, there's many ways to, to consider the beauty of what really this picture is, is displaying for us. But in some ways, Zechariah becomes a living, walking statement of the people of Israel in that period of silence of the intertestamental period. At the end of the Old Testament, there's 400 years of silence. Zechariah now lives out that what seems like 400 years, right? Those nine months bearing, right? This time of this eternal time there that he's experiencing this 400 years and then nine months of silence to then out of seemingly nowhere, on the day that, that um, John the Baptist is born, that we see that he literally then just speaks out. His name will be John, he writes out. And then it says the father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, and we see verse 68 to 79, this amazing prophecy. 
from God through Zechariah to the people. And we, we, we see that, we sense that, we know that God is speaking and he has not stopped speaking. And he's speaking to us today through his word. I think we need to recognize that reminder as well, that he's speaking to you right now. And he wants you to hear his word and his, and his uh, statement. And the spirit of God speaks to us within our hearts. And so I want us to look at this little section, this little song, verses 67 through 79. Just gonna walk through it briefly here. As he says, really in a sense, we're asking this question, what in the world is Zacharias singing about? What are his first words that he says after nine months? What, they ought to be quite significant, and they are. So what exactly is he saying? What words of prophecy is he giving, and how do we interpret this? Well, I think we can look at it in four main ways. That he, he speaks in four simple ways about redemption, about remembering, about preparation, and about peace. These four things, redemption, remembering, preparation, and peace, are these four ways that I think we can break down this uh, prophecy and this song. We, the first phrase we see in verse 68 is, blessed be the Lord. In Latin, or in uh, tradition, in the church, it is known as the Benedictus. Uh, last week, it was uh, the Magnificat, which is the, may my Lord magnify the Lord, my heart magnifies the Lord, the Magnificat in Mary's song. This is Zechariah's uh, prophecy here is known as the Benedictus, this blessed be the Lord, God of Israel. And then next week, we'll look at this kind of glory to God in the highest, this gloria in excelsis Deo in Latin there. And then we'll look at Simeon's song, which is the nunc dimittis, this, this idea of, Lord, now you are letting my servant depart in peace. These are very well-known and, and famous songs and messages that we have seen and studied in the church history throughout many years. And yet today, we look at this idea of he begins with, blessed be the Lord, as he rejoices and praises the God of Israel. And he specifically praises God and sings his praises for what? Because of these two things. God has visited. Look at verse 68. God has visited us and redeemed us. He has visited us. That God has come to be with us. The Emmanuel, God with us. And when did he do this? Well, in the Old Testament, he did this as well. As God visited and redeemed the people, as he came to be with his people in Exodus, redeemed them means this idea he purchased them out, he bought them back out of slavery of Egypt, he redeems them and saves them, he calls them, he rescues them, he forms them into a people, and he makes them a people of his own possession. So Zechariah is saying that God has come to rescue us again, to redeem us again. And he ultimately goes through and he says in verse 69 that he has raised up a horn of salvation. He has saved us. And then later on it says that he has saved us from our enemies. We are no longer uh, persecuted by our enemies. We have been rescued. And I really find this statement of verse 69. It says, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. The horn of salvation, if you've been with us for the last couple of years, you may have picked up on this statement. It's been mentioned in a couple different places, particularly in Hannah's song in 1 Samuel and in later psalms that David writes. It's mentioned a couple of times. This idea of a horn of salvation is, is referencing this display of power. J.C. Ryle writes in the words of Henry Venn, and he says, the horn of salvation is this idea of the horn of an animal that is its weapon of defense and vengeance. It's an ornament and beauty too. It's used therefore in the prophetic style to denote the power of the strongest empires. This is how we're led to understand it here. The image, the exceeding greatness of the Redeemer's strength, the never ceasing exertion of it on behalf of his church are signified in this idea that God has raised up a horn of salvation. You could think of it as an antler as a moose's or a deer's antlers is the symbol of strength and power and yet also defensive ability and capability. You could think of it as it's described as a rhinoceros horn, a horn that displays the strength and utter sheer power. But for me, I, I was led to this idea of this concept of a, almost like the tusks of an elephant that are both beautiful and incredibly awe-inspiring as this giant animal, and yet 
in its ability to also defend and attack. It, it displays the power and strength of that empire. Uh, there's a story if you study history where perhaps you may have studied in school at some time, the person, uh, the, the famous general of the Carthaginian Empire, his name was Hannibal. And he attacked the beginning of the Roman Empire. This was before Rome was a mighty empire. And Carthage is in North Africa. And Carthage was the mighty empire at that time. And Hannibal is very well known throughout history for being one of the generals to actually employ not only a horse cavalry and barbarian soldiers and to be extremely good at, at uh, organizing mass amounts of men that many people still or, uh, study Hannibal like they would uh, Napoleon and these other military generals. But during the Punic Wars and other times before that, it says that Hannibal actually trained up to 100 or 150 at times different war elephants. And that is like the coolest thing in the world. Many people said this is kind of the pre-tank. This was the tank before there were tanks. You had a, a, uh, uh, an elephant that they had the ability to control and to drive into often the areas where it would cause absolute destruction and mayhem and chaos. The horses and many other uh, of the other enemies would, would be scattered with an elephant charging at them. They wouldn't know what to do. And so Hannibal had the boldness actually to take these war elephants, up to 40 of them, and bring them to the European mainland and cross over the Alps to try to attack Rome from the north. It thought to be something impossible to do, but he did it in the middle of winter. But only a few of the elephants survived, but he eventually had this extraordinary battle at the Battle of Cannae, which is one of the most extraordinary battles studied in military history. But it was this idea that the Carthaginian Empire, yes, their mighty navy and their mighty army, but the symbol of their strength was this war elephant that could be, it was almost impossible to stop if employed properly. The tusks of these war elephants causing absolute destruction, a sheer sign of strength and power and a symbol of victory that will lead us into the battle. And that, in some ways, if you were to wrap your mind around that giant tusk of an elephant, is a picture of Jesus Christ that has come to our battlefield. As we are being attacked by the enemy, we find that this tusk, this horn of salvation is lifted up in front of us and leads us into battle and will not be destroyed and will not, will not be killed, but rather will lead us to a conquering force and power. And so he, he points our hearts to the fact that Jesus has visited us, redeemed us. He leads us in this horn of salvation in front of us. God has sent John the Baptist to prepare our hearts for the coming way of salvation. And then he tells us to remember, about remembering, where he's, he sings here, if you look in verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant, is that God, in a sense, has kept his promise. Again, this period of silence to now where God is speaking, he has not forgotten us, he's saying. He has remembered the promises he made to Abraham. He has remembered the promises he made to Jacob and to Israel. He remembered the promises he made to our forefathers, and he is keeping those promises now. He is proclaiming this reminder. Can you imagine a leader who actually kept his promises? <laughs> we know what 2024 is bringing, political season, and we hear on the news every politician making all kinds of promises, right? And they always keep their promises, don't they, right? And so to think of ourselves here in America to be looking forward, looking forward to a king, to one who has come to rescue us, who is reminding us that he always keeps his promises. And he, what he said he w was going to do, he will accomplish. And that speaks to us today. Because perhaps you are finding yourselves even today in a period, in a place, in a time where you have experienced a bunch of broken promises. You find yourselves trusting that politician who said he would whatever and has let you down yet again. Or perhaps you yourself have let someone down again because you again have broken your promises. It's that idea, that reminder that God has said he has come to save us. He will deliver us. His plan of redemption and salvation will come to fruition just like it did here and just like it will one day when he returns. 
that the history of salvation is being written here on this, on this page. And it is being written even today in 2023. From Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Israel to Joseph to Moses to Joshua to Samuel to David to the prophets and the major and the minors in the Old Testament to those preaching a message that a Messiah will come. As Malachi says in chapter 4, a son of righteousness will rise and a new dawn is coming. Believe and trust in this message. And yet for 400 years, they're like, where is that? When is that message coming, Malachi? (laughs) Generation goes and generation goes and generation goes. And not a word. Not an answer. I get nothing. And perhaps that is you as you pray to God. I pray, I pray, and it's as if all I hear is nothing. We must hold on to the faith that, that teaches us that God will keep his promises. He does not forget. He will show mercy. And the mercy that he has promised to our fathers, he will show to our generation as well. He kept his promise in sending John and in sending Jesus. And he will keep his promise to you today. He will redeem you. He will remember you. As Mary sang, I am amazed, I am magnifying, I am rejoicing because God has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. He is mindful of someone even like me. And so we are mindful that God is mindful of us and we are reminded that God not only is going to redeem us and that he remembers his promise of salvation and he will bring that to fruition, but also he wants to prepare our hearts, to prepare our hearts, like Get ready, as he says in verse 76 and 77, the child that is coming is the prophet of the Most High. Lord, he will prepare his ways. He will give knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because the tender mercy of our God. It's this idea that John is this voice crying out, reminding us, he's the alarm clock that goes off in the morning. Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, right? He's the one telling us that church bell ringing, It's time, it's time. John is the bulldozer leveling the rough roads in order to pave the way for the coming king. To smooth the road, prepare the way so that the mountains will be leveled out and the valleys will be filled in. So the way will be straight for the way of Jesus to come. Prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation. You could say it in this way. It is reminding us, as John is telling us, keep your head up. Don't look down and focus on your own your life alone, but keep your head up and know, as he says here in verse 76, know, know God's salvation is here. Know it. Believe it. And then he says, to know this, right, to keep your head up and know that God's salvation is here and it comes through his forgiveness and his mercy. Notice he says that in verse 77 and 78, in the forgiveness of their sins. And then he says, look, look to the horizon, Keep your head up. Know the salvation is here and look to the horizon because look, I can almost see it. The light is beginning to burst through the darkness. The sunrise is coming. The sun is coming up again. A new day is coming. Darkness may have been there, but we know a new day is dawning. So keep your head up. Don't look down. Keep it up. Believe God has forgiven you and know that the sun is rising. Hope is here. And as Malachi 4 tells us that the sun, not S-O-N, but the S-U-N, the sun of righteousness is rising with healing on its wings. As if this winged sun is flying up from the horizon of darkness as the sun rises in the day. We see that happen again also on Easter morning. For the ladies come as the dawn awakened and they find an empty tomb. It's easy to get lost in the dark. It's easy to lose faith in the late hours of the night. It's easy to lose it all when we see our lives only Good Friday and Holy Saturday and forget that, that, that Sunday's coming. That Sunday is coming. The the song, He is Worthy, so often is so applicable to almost every sermon, I feel like. But the song, He is Worthy, is particularly poignant here. The the first lines, if you recall, it says, do you feel the world is broken? Do, Do you feel that darkness? 
Do you feel the shadows deepen? It's a period of silence and darkness and confusion. But do you know that the dark won't stop the light from getting through? And do you wish that it could all be made new? And then he says later on, is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is, right? That the darkness that you face, the darkness that surrounds that we know will not stop the light from getting through. Cannot stamp it out. The sun is rising, the dawn awakens, a new day is coming. These are clear messianic metaphors pointing to the person of Jesus Christ who is our savior. As Malachi tells us at the end, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing on his wings. And then Luke 1 verse 78, Luke 1 in Zechariah's song, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby, what? Verse 78, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. We don't have to feel lost and alone and afraid in the dark. I hate the feeling of not knowing what to do, not knowing the path to take, not ever understanding what I am here for, but knowing that I'm not in, in the dark no longer. I have a light to give light to my path. And that's what he speaks about in verse 79. This is the closing idea here. He speaks about peace. But not just any old peace, a peace that guides our feet into the way of peace. Look at verse 79. This light comes into our lives, so those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to what? To guide our feet into the way of peace. We're sitting in darkness, the shadow of death, just like Psalm 23 tells us. You're familiar with that phrase, right? He leads me in paths of righteousness. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We're in the darkness, we're in the midnight, but yet the dawn has, is coming. The sun is rising. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, John 1, 5. The light shines and it guides our feet into the way of peace. It tells us the path of righteousness, the way to take and what to avoid and which way to go. Jesus is the way to peace. We speak about this in Ephesians 2, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. Jesus Christ, in Christmas time, brings peace to us. He unites Jews and Gentiles into one people when he, in his own body on the cross, broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles in the world by creating in himself one new people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought the good news of peace. The good news of peace. In some ways, that's what we sing about today. The good news of peace to the Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who are now near. And doesn't our world need peace today? As we sing, peace on earth and goodwill to men. The, the, the angels will sing about that in Luke 2. There's no more fretting and, and resisting and kicking against the goes and fighting, but rather we come to the Lord, to Jesus Christ, and we can find peace. We can find shalom. We are made whole again, and we are saved. So Jesus doesn't come Christmas time for nostalgia and holiday music and red and green and Christmas lights, these kinds of ideas, right? He comes for something far deeper, a, a deeper need that we all find in ourselves, hungering for. Perhaps it's peace in your marriage, peace in your families, peace in your own life and in your mind and in your heart, a peace that we are hungry for, that Jesus will fill us with. He comes to bring peace into the world. What storm are you in today? Jesus has the ability to say, peace, be still. I know it's a busy season. I know we say that all the time. We've got all these things to do. We've got all these places to be. We've got all these things and a list to accomplish. But if we were to allow ourselves to sit, to find ourselves as a person who was sitting in darkness but now has seen a great light, 
to look into the horizon and see the light coming, to keep our eyes on Jesus, looking unto him who is the author and finisher of our faith, to look to him and to recognize the peace has risen, the sun is here, and now I know which way to go. I know the direction to take. I follow him. I walk towards the light. He guides your feet in the way of peace. We're gonna conclude today's sermon with, uh, and this whole service with Hark the Herald Angels Sing. In particular, because of verse number three, where it says this, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And here's the lines that you will find familiar with today and with Malachi chapter four, risen with healing in his wings, light and life to all he brings. Hail the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. We sing his praises. We rejoice to, and we sing to the Prince of Peace, our healer, the son of righteousness has come. Let us pray. Father, we come before you, give you praise today. We ask, God, that you would teach us these truths. You would allow us to understand the complexity of your message in this prophetic word, yet also to not miss the simplicity of it. God, sometimes things are just so simple we tend to miss it. God, you have come and you are coming again. You love us. You desire to care for us. The healing that we all hunger for within our very souls and hearts, you provide the confusion that we face all around us, God, you give us direction and light. The anger and the vitriol and the war that we see, you provide peace. God, I pray that we'd come to you this Christmas season. I pray, God, we'd see you first and foremost, and then, as a result, we would rejoice. Help us to rejoice today, this week and next. Have a smile because, Lord, we know your goodness and your greatness shines on us today. In Jesus' name we pray.